There's been an explosion of new data sources in life sciences. How are pharma companies using these insights and all that data to get new drugs to market safely and effectively? We'll answer that question today. I'm Alex Maersberger, host of the SAS Health Pulse podcast, and today we're joined by not one, but two wonderful guests. Krishna Tangerella, head of data analytics and director of outcomes research at Organon, and Shireen Eid, global lead, real-world evidence, and epidemiologist at SAS. We'll start with Krishna. Welcome. Thank you so much, Alex. Uh, uh, so glad to be here. As a trained physician and epidemiologist, there's many directions that you could take your career. What led you to pharmaceuticals and what has kept you engaged in the industry? Um, Alex, so I have my medicine degree from India. I did my master's of public health uh, from Indiana University, IU Bloomington. Um, and then I started working as an epidemiologist at uh, Indiana State Department of Health. Um, so I used to do the needs assessment for various uh, state and federal uh, funded programs. So what I noticed was like, you know, not all the programs work the same for all the population. Um, there are different confounding factors. For example, like, you know, there is a financial uh, access to the healthcare or it could be financial status. Um, so then I realized like, you know, there is a lot to learn when actually the programs we implement or the drug that comes into the market, then we actually do in the clinical trial. So that led me um, the interest in the population health. Um, so obviously, like, you know, pharmaceuticals is a $400 billion industry. Um, the, the pharmaceuticals spend a lot of money on research and innovation compared to any other industry in the world. Um, so if you are in the pharmaceuticals, that you will be in the forefront um, when we create the medications, uh, medicine. So uh, you will be in the forefront uh, when we are talking with the government on the reimbursement policies. Um, you will have the cutting edge latest technology uh, for the research tools um, that we can have and also the access to a lot of data sources that is not available um, normally if you are working for any other uh, industry. So, um, uh, and if you are a lucrative, stable job, so, you know, pharmaceutical is the way to go, so. Talk about being at the forefront. Being at the forefront of creating the next medicine sounds so exciting. Part of bringing a new drug to market is health economics and outcomes research. In your title, studying the data to make sure products are safe and effective. Is there something you wish people knew more about health economics and outcomes research or the behind the scenes of what goes into that process? A great question. Now, health economics and outcomes research are, is used with a pharmaceutical company um, uh, to understand the physician prescribing patterns. Um, even though the drug, we have the guidelines, each physician will look into the patients and then the, the prescribing patterns are different. Um, so, so we look into it. We also look into how the drug uh, performs when it comes to the real world. Um, so the health outcome, economics and outcomes research uh, is used in various organizations, not just in pharmaceuticals. You know, the company who sells the drugs, they're going to use the health economics and outcomes research. The company who buys the drug, um, the, even the federal and state, they're going to use the health outcome, economics and outcomes research. Um, so the, in the clinical trial, the, it, it's very regulated. You know, we are going to look at the safety, the, the risk of the, uh, the you know, drug within the limited population. But when it comes to the real world, uh, we look into the value and the impact of the product. 
Um, so we're going to look into more of the financial status of the patients and also we look into socioeconomic status of the patient. So the real world, uh, the drug when it comes to the real world, it acts differently than what is in the clinical trial. So uh, health economics and outcomes research, we use in the preclinical and also the clinical phases where we look into the outcomes uh, within the clinical phase of the drug. We used in the peri-launch, um, and also where, during the launch, we look into the budget impact model, for example. Like you know, we look into health economic models. Once the drug is launched, uh, then we carefully follow the drug uh, into the real world. We look into the label extensions, for example. You know, what is the off-label use of the product? Uh, we look into healthcare uh, reimbursement and policy, how it changes over the period of time. So basically, follow the life cycle of a product um, when it is in the post-launch. Um, so it's it's a very broad. Uh, you know, uh, department like in our industry um, that is widely used across the organizations. It's certainly something I wish I knew, or now I know that you brought up that broad department and how diverse the backgrounds are that all come together. A similar experience is happening not with the people, but with the data. How varied are the sources of data now? Is it just a wide range of different sources and different areas of everyday life at this point? Oh, yeah. So we'll be pulling data from healthcare claims uh, that we have across years. Uh, we'll be pulling data from uh, electronic medical records. Uh, we'll also be pulling data from registries, uh, patient-reported outcomes. So we'll be pulling data uh, from the social media, right? So data is everywhere. So we'll be pulling data from different resources that we have. Um, and that's one of the challenges that we need. Uh, we have internally how to synthesize, how to get all the data and synthesize it. So, yeah. Within that explosion of new data sources, there's remote patient monitoring, Internet of Medical Things, all the connected devices. How does that change your work? What value do you expect all of these new areas to bring in the future? Well, um, I remember when I joined in early 2000s, we need to have, used to have a lot of clinical trials where the patient need to come to the hospital and record the vital signs, right? So having the remote monitoring, patients can now have like iPhone, you know, patients can have like iWatch and record the vital signs within um, every day. Right, uh, patient can monitor uh, any changes in the uh, healthcare status for the patient. So it helped tremendously how we uh, do the research within the pharmaceutical industry. Now, the patient um, can also be proactive. If, there, if he sees something changes in the vital signs, he's going to reach out to the physician. A physician can do the teledoc. Uh, he doesn't have to. The patient doesn't have to come into the office. Like you know, he can he can remotely log in and, and provide the medication uh, or diagnosis for the patient. Um, so this data is captured very widely, and, and they, they, all the data is securely uh, placed on the server, and, and it is readily available for access for any of the researchers. Uh, we, we look into that data as well. There is a lot of data on social media. Um, so the internet of things, what, what you're saying, changed the way we look into the, um, the research and how we do the research. Um, so it's uh, the, we are advancing into the AI, um, artificial intelligence, you know, uh, so, so I would say that it changed um, the perception of how we look into uh, the patients and how we treat the patients. Now it's a patient-centered research. It's not anymore like you know doctors are going to uh, collect all these vital signs and going to do the research. But it's how, how actually patient is involved uh, within uh, the, like, uh, the research and how patient is providing his input into the development of these drugs. Synthetic control arms or extended control arms have been really talked about as a way to make sure that patients with a rare or life-threatening condition 
are provided the opportunity for life-changing therapies versus randomly receiving the placebo. Are you optimistic that this is going to receive more widespread adoption? Are synthetic control arms the, the future? Yes, definitely. Um, when we have the patients, for example, in the life-threatening events, um, it's unethical for the patient to put, put it on the control arm, on the placebo arm, and say that, oh, you're not going to get the drug for this clinical trial, right? You know, it's, it's, it could be like, you know, uh, for oncology reasons, or it could be cardiovascular. So we cannot delay the treatment for these patients. It's very unethical to put them in the in the control arm. Having synthetic um, or the extended arm uh, will, will take off this problem, right? You know, now we have the synthetic arm uh, for the for the cases, and we get this data on the synthetic arm using various data sources uh, that we are available. You know, we have like uh, claims, uh, health insurance claims. We have uh, data from electronic medical records, registries, patient reported outcomes. Um, using all this data um, and using having that accurate uh, uh, methods of analyzing the data, we are able to closely uh, match the synthetic. Uh, uh, trial control arm to the cases. Uh, and there are many advantages. You know, the, for example, the patient's uh, recollection is limited. So if you are going back to like maybe one year or two years and trying to collect all the information from these patients, uh, if you ask the patient, hey, what, how did you do uh, last two years? Like, and did you take any medications? He might miss telling that information to us. But having that reliable data sources, we track the patient um, more reliably, more accurately, um, going back even like a couple of years. Um, that information is very valuable. Um, and we can also retain the patients. For example, if you have the control arm with the real patients, the, we, we might the patient might drop from the trial. But having the data from the data sources, we don't have to worry about it. Um, so there are a lot of advantages of having synthetic arm compared to the uh, having the control arm for the patients. Um, but still, there are some regulatory ethical reasons, right? You know, we are not there yet, um, uh, but we are getting closer based on the, uh, the latest technology that we have now. It sounds like we're getting fairly close to solving some of the most pressing challenges uh, and getting more widespread adoption in the clinical trial space. If there was one challenge that technology could solve for you or for the field of outcomes research, what would it be? Well, um, data is key for health and economics and outcomes research. Um, so data comes from various sources. Uh, it comes from um, health insurance claims. It com comes from electronic medical records patient reported outcomes, registries, social media, such as like, you know, even Facebook. Um, uh, so data is everywhere. Um, so the, one of the challenge that technology can solve is uh, to get the data from various sources and then do duplicate it. Because, you know, uh, the patient, uh, uh, it, there's, there's a lot of duplication and there's a lot of fake data. Um, so the technology can, can get all the data into one place and then clean the data, um, and and then use it for for the research and create the dashboards that we can directly give it to payers. The other one technology can do is a low code or no code. I know my team spends a lot of time in writing these SaaS programs, you know, writing this lot of uh, uh, technology, uh, even uh, the tools that we have to use. But there could be like a advancement within um, the tools that we are currently using, such as like SaaS via. We are getting into SaaS visual analytics, right? You know, we are going to SaaS visual statistics. So we have to use uh, the latest technology that we have um, and, and um, get the valuable information out from the data quickly. Um, as soon as possible. So, uh, so saving time is something that technology can uh, can do. Um, so, yeah. Krishna, we've learned a lot about Organon and about you and your role. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us, as well as your personal career journey. 
Oh, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Yes. I appreciate how we've learned from how Organon is using the explosion of data to bring new therapeutics to market faster, safer, and better than ever. We'll now jump over to Shireen Eid, Global Lead for Real-World Evidence and Epidemiology at SAS, for her take on the endless opportunities data provides. Welcome, Shireen. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So you're an epidemiologist. We've talked to a few epi leaders in local and federal government uh, alongside inside insurers. This is an area that's had a lot of interest, especially these last few years. We had one of our guests joke that kids are dreaming of becoming epidemiologists now instead of astronauts. Yes. Uh, so you can choose what to do and where to go. Why choose SAS? Oh, SAS is beyond the leader, right? It's always been the gold standard. Even in my epi training, we were told it's the gold standard, um, but it's the best in class software. And I believe that my purpose in this life is to find ways to impact people's lives for the better. That includes giving them better health, saving their lives. And the best way that I know how to do that is to mathematically model disease patterns and find ways that we can intervene. And SAS is the pl best platform and best software to do that. I believe that this is part of my acts of service, if you will, and doing uh, the best work that I can do with the best tools that I have is one of the ways that I do the best service that I can. What do you see as the biggest opportunities for the application of real world data? You mentioned sensors and wearables and new technology. Where are you seeing the, the biggest opportunities for the application of real world data in life sciences? And have we reached that tipping point yet where the use cases are accepted into mainstream clinical research? Well, we're not at the tipping point yet, but it's increasingly in, um, being uh, incorporated. I was just speaking with some uh, life sciences organizations uh, this and last week um, where they specifically asked us, well, can can we do sensor data? This is our plan to incorporate it. Um, I myself am a diabetic and my mother was a diabetic. I have I wear a sensor. I'm very excited to see when my blood sugar goes too high because of stress or because of something I ate. So personalized medicine is really um, at the forefront and how you personalize the medicine is something that we're exploring as an industry, um, knowing that uh, what works for me might not uh, work for my mom, for example, or I mean, our lifestyles are very different. She was, a, even though she was a veterinarian, she was a stay-at-home mom. Um, she didn't have the financial burdens that I carry, um, and her stressors in life were slightly different than mine. Um, and so, maybe what was contributing to her underlying condition um, may, will possibly be different than mine. Maybe her triggers and the food uh, and the diet that she uh, that she followed uh, is slightly different. Even the composition of our diets and our uh, lifestyles, whether sedentary or otherwise. I remember watching her do exercise videos uh, on a VHS tape. Um, I don't have um, I don't have the VHS tape. Instead, I might go to the gym, and that burden might be a little different for me. Um, and that kind of personalization, because our circumstances are different, is, I believe, really critical. And we have the data and the computational power to do that. 
knowing full well that we all have digital exhaust, right? Is, is there anybody today that doesn't have a smart device? We have smart homes, we have smart watches, we have the smartphone. And that digital exhaust that we leave behind is critical because it's our, it's our digital fingerprint, if you will. And every person is unique. Even if they're, if we're deliberately trying to limit our screen time or modify our behaviors as we interact with these smart devices, we're still interacting. And as long as there's an interaction, I'm leaving a mark behind. And when I leave that mark behind, um, that's a piece of me. Personalized medicine really is um, intended to get to the whole person, whether I have behavioral stressors, uh, if I have emotional stressors, if I have psychological stressors, or physical or genetic, um, as well as, uh, you know, just other economic stressors, whatever those stressors might be, that put me in a situation that I might manifest a particular condition or overcome that condition, right? Mind over matter. These sayings that we've had, and these are age old sayings, are not um, for nothing. And so how can I support the whole person? so that they could have the best health outcome. Because when I'm at my best health, I can be at my best self. You have the, the unique perspective living with a chronic disease while impacting others with chronic diseases. Can you share a little bit more? I think you started to. Can you share yeah. a little bit more about how you mesh those two worlds? Oh, I'm so grateful knowing that I have um, the sensor on my arm, that I have the computational power in a platform, that I have the data to make really critical lifestyle changes, right? So, for example, um, there's a family wedding coming up in just a couple of days. Am I going to have a piece of that cake or not, right? Have I maintained a healthy enough lifestyle and made positive enough choices that I could maybe indulge in a smaller piece of cake than instead of not, right? So um, because of that, I can see, I get immediate feedback on my choices and my behavior, which modifies then my tomorrow, right? And so knowing that I can, uh, that I have access to, and I have a direct role, um, a very tangible role in my care, and I get immediate feedback, especially in an era where, we have immediate gratification all around us. This is really critical for me to manage my health better and gain wellness in a way that makes me present for my children, makes me present for my my job and the work that I do. I'm I'm excited to be that living example of a potential. This is why we do what we do, folks. Um, and I know that the things that uh, we have discovered today and that I have at my fingertips, I know would have impacted my mom's life if she had access to it. We, you mentioned common phrases or different words that you hear consistently at life sciences events. So if you're at a listening to a main stage panel or in the hallways or just in the, the advertising for a life science event, you see ethics, you see DEI, you see a lot of buzzwords um, that have commonality. When you hear these, what do you think? I think, oh, wow, right? So, Epis have been talking about 
uh, disparities in health for decades. We have noticed in patents, because that's our job, is to assess the pattern of a particular disease at a populational level. We've been able to assess that, hey, there are differences between different people, whether it's a geographical difference between them, like urban-rural, um, whether it's an economic difference, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's an income difference, educational differences, in addition to our traditional demographic differences, right? So race, ethnicity, language, um, all of these contribute to differences. And we I'm very grateful for my profession. I'm very proud of the work that we've done to highlight that there are differences between people, right, for a variety of reasons. And it contributes to health outcomes. And how can we intervene in a way that is uh, that is contributing to that? Um, I'm I'm impressed with um, how much more mainstream these conversations have become. Um, and I'm impressed with the policies that are supporting the activity to make it worthwhile to a company, uh, a multi-billion dollar company to invest in it. But what I'm most proud of is that SAS is at the forefront talking about ethics and responsible AI and identifying that diversity doesn't just mean uh, a language that you speak or don't speak. Uh, you talked about the unique challenges and the so much that we've overcome so much. You talked about how epi, how epidemiologists have been looking at diversity data for decades. Uh, and so we've obviously come a long way and we still have a ways to go. What's something that keeps you optimistic about epidemiology, about technology, about the future of life sciences? I'm so excited that we're objectively investing in better care and better ways of working and, and collaborating, quite frankly. I see a convergence. We talked about the convergence for a while, right? And knowing that um, there's an opportunity for like-minded people who are passionate at passionate about uh, getting people healthier and saving their lives, knowing that there's so much more that we can do because we have the technology, we have the best in class analytics, and we have the data, right? We, they talk about data being the new oil, right? And how you refine the data is the product that you get out of it. Well, that's for us is insights, right? And I can tell you in some of my publications just last year, uh, the risk of a metastatic cancer, for example, in a cancer patient is heavily driven by their liver health. Well, when you look at it, you're like, oh, that makes sense. But we don't have we'd never had it quantified before. Um, and we were able to do that on uh, with SAS software on SASVIA. So that makes me optimistic that the when you bring this kind of quantitative modeling to a scientist who really understands the science of that disease or that organ system or the body, and they're in the business of caring for people because of it. it's a labor of love and passion. And I can say, look, my, my numbers are telling me this. They're like, aha, of course. Right. And they didn't even realize that subconsciously that's part of their prognosis. They look at their liver health, their patient's liver health. And that uh, and it was uh, an unknown or an unnamed uh, factor, even though subconsciously they've done it. So we were able to uncover that. So things like that make me optimistic. Things like, hey, we're all in this together. And the dialogue and the discourse at a global level is so um, 
uh, inspiring and motivating to know that we are all collectively as a human race trying to do better for ourselves with better tools. Um, and we're having healthy dialogues, uh, especially because I don't know everything. The next scientist doesn't know everything. And the meeting of the minds allows us to have a very healthy discourse around what can we do that's better for our patients. Well, we are so fortunate to have you at SAS and societally, we are so fortunate to have people like you and Krishna as trained physicians and epidemiologists living out your purpose and your passion and the expertise that you provide, being able to go out and use technology for good. And like you said, turn those data into insights that really have an impact on individual lives and can change the outcomes of family histories. And so this was so wonderful. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Oh, it was absolutely my pleasure. I cannot tell you how grateful I am to have a platform like SAS be invested in saving people's lives. SAS does save lives. And partnering with people like Krishna um, makes me hopeful that this is just the beginning. Well, two great guests, 2,000 learnings, I think. Uh, this has been such a wonderful experience. Let us know your thoughts. Send us an email uh, with your industry learnings, the insights that you're gathering from the data that you have or the industry trends that you see. The Health Pulse Podcast at sas.com. We're rooting for you always. 